Amen. So as we look at the gospel this morning, we're going to be focusing in on three questions. Number one, what is the gospel? Number two, what does the gospel do? And number three, what are we to do with the gospel? And again, the text we're looking at today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53 and 54. So if you'd please uh, read along with me, I'll begin in chapter 53 from verse 4. Speaking of the Messiah here, this is what it says. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Chapter 54, verse 1, it says this, Sing, O barren woman, you who have borne no children. Break forth in singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the woman who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Do not spare, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear, for you will not be put to shame. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. You will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore, for your maker is your husband." The Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. And from verse 11 it says, O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones, and all your children shall be taught by the Lord. And great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it has not come to you. This is the word of the Lord. So this text from the Old Testament, what we have here in, in Isaiah's writing here, this is a very vivid and very moving picture of what the gospel is and what the gospel does. And we're going to explain that and break it down as we go through this. So let's begin with our first question, addressing the first issue. What is the gospel? Now the word gospel, it means good news. It means a proclamation. It means a news report, basically, is what it means. 
And that's exactly what the gospel of Jesus Christ did. It is a news report of something which just happened at a place and time in history that has changed everything, right? So the gospel isn't just something that you do. It isn't something that you live as a way of life. See, the gospel is a report. It is news for you and I of something that has happened, a historical event that has taken place at a particular time and in a particular place. Now in ancient cultures, especially in the Greek culture, this word gospel was a word which was used in very specific situations. It was used to announce a rescue. It was used to announce deliverance, an act of deliverance. For example, if you were in a nation that was being occupied and the army came and they delivered you from that occupation, they set you free, then the word would go out, that proclamation of freedom, and that is the word evangelion in, in Greek, which is our English word gospel. That is the gospel. It's the declaration, the proclamation that you were not free, but you have been set free. You have been rescued. So what is the gospel? The gospel is good news announcing that we have been rescued. You know, these past few weeks, uh, a lot of us have been helping out with flood relief. One of the places uh, where some of us have gone down to is the neighborhood, the Greens, you know, over off of Mountain View and Airport, just south of Mountain View. And it was one of the places that was hardest hit during the flood, you know, houses were underwater for days and, and things like that. And uh, I went down there one day and we were, you know, working, cleaning out some basements and stuff like that. And I was talking to people and they were telling their stories of, of what had happened. And everybody, especially the closer you got to Airport Road, everybody was telling this similar story of what had happened. That this wall of water had just kind of rushed into their neighborhood suddenly, almost unexpectedly. And, uh, and because it happened so quickly, many of them were caught off guard. They were unprepared for it and they weren't able to evacuate on time. A lot of them also, they didn't think that it was going to be as serious as it turned out being because really the river is, is really far away from their house, right? And so a lot of them got the evacuation notice, but they didn't get out of their houses. Some of them couldn't get out of their homes because they didn't have cars or they were stuck at home with little kids and didn't want to go out, you know, in the potential flood. One family I talked to told me that they were sitting down eating dinner in their house when the water came rushing into their living room, right, into their house. And by then it was too late to get out, right? A lot of them went upstairs. And a number of the people that I talked to, they told me stories of how they had actually been rescued out of the windows of their house by uh, policemen, firemen who were coming around the neighborhood in boats and rescuing people out of their windows, right? Uh, and you can imagine if you were one of these families, right? You're sitting there, the water's rising, you're freaking out, especially if you've got little kids. And there comes this message, this announcement, this proclamation that somebody's at the window with a boat and they're here to save you and rescue your family. You can imagine one of the kids in one of these families, right, looking out the window, seeing these people come in boats to rescue them. And they would proclaim to their family, hey, guess what? Good news. Someone's come to rescue us from this perilous situation. That is the kind of news that the gospel is. That's what the gospel is. And here in Isaiah chapter 53, what we have is the gospel message, the news, the proclamation, the announcement of our rescue. And in that text, that's exactly what we read. We read about the peril that we were saved from and how we were saved from it. It says, He 
Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was put the chastisement which brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. You see, the gospel is the story. It's the good news. It's the proclamation of how God has rescued us from peril. We were separated from God because of our sin, right? We were condemned to death eternally, but God in Christ, because of his great love for us, when we were dead in sin, made us alive in Christ, right? He came to rescue us by sacrificing himself, by giving himself in our place that we might be healed, that we might have eternal life. You see, not everything that the Bible teaches is the gospel, right? Not everything that the Bible teaches is the gospel, but everything in the Bible serves to tell the story of the gospel, right? Everything in this book, every little story that makes up this big story, it serves in some way to tell part of this one grand story, the story that this book was given to us to tell us about, and that is the story of Jesus. It is the announcement of our rescue, the gospel, the good news, so that's what the gospel it is, is a news report, is it, it is an announcement that we have been saved and rescued from a perilous plight by Jesus Christ. And that's the story, that's what the whole Bible's about. So that's what the gospel is, but now let's talk briefly about what the gospel does. And here in Isaiah chapter 53 and 54, there are three things that we read that the gospel does. Number one, we see that the gospel removes our sin. The gospel removes your sin. Number two, the gospel restructures your heart. Okay, that's the next thing we'll see. And then thirdly, the gospel reverses your values. So the first and the most obvious result that the gospel has in your life is that it removes your sin. That's what Isaiah chapter 53 is all about. That sin is the root issue that needs to be dealt with in each of our lives, right? Sin is exactly what Jesus came to take care of. He bore it upon himself. He took it upon himself. Because sin is what separates us from God. Sin is what results in condemnation eternally. Sin, practically in our lives also, it kills relationships. I know many of you have experienced that, that sin kills relationships. Sin divides. Sin corrupts. Sin breaks down. Sin is what leads to heartache and pain and sorrow and wars and strifes, right? Sin is the root issue of what is wrong with the world. But Jesus came to remove sin. He came to remove your sin and he did that by taking it upon himself, vicariously and voluntarily. And check out what it says here in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10. It says, it was the Lord's will or it pleased the Lord to crush him and cause him to suffer. And here's the really interesting part. The next part of verse 10, it says this. The Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Now some of your translations will say that he makes his life a guilt offering. And then after that it says that when he does that, he shall see his seed. In other words, he'll see the fruit of it. And, and, and here's the point. The, 
the Bible talks a lot, especially in the Old Testament, about offerings, right? About sin offerings, about guilt offerings. These were things that were done in the tabernacle, in the temple. They were animal sacrifices. And the idea in the Old Testament was that if someone was guilty, if they had committed a crime or they had committed a sin, then there would be an animal offered up. And that animal would be offered up vicariously in that person's place. They would take the sin of that person it would be transferred to that animal and that animal would bear the punishment for that guilt and this is what it's saying about Jesus that he suffered the consequences of our sin voluntarily and vicariously so that by his death uh, his death would be a guilt offering and that by it our sins would be removed and that's the promise of the gospel that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ if you accept this rescue just like the people in the flood, right? When the guy shows up at your window with a boat and says, get in, you have a choice to make. Are you going to get in or are you going to say, no, I think I'm going to try to stick this out on my own? Here's what happens when you accept God's rescue through Jesus Christ. Your sins are removed. That's the first thing. The Bible puts it in this kind of terminology. It says that when you do that, he takes your sins and he casts them as far as the east is from the west. He casts them into the sea of forgetfulness to be remembered no more. That sin which separated you from God, that sin which was a curse upon you, condemning you eternally, twisting and contorting your life. Practically, he removes it from your record. He goes into the database of all your wrongdoings and just pushes the delete button. Right? He removes that which separated you from him. He removes that which at one time condemned you by putting it on Jesus. He took, and he takes Jesus' peace and Jesus' righteousness and places it on you. So that's what the gospel does. It removes your sin. But that's not all the gospel does. Check this out. The gospel also restructures your heart. Right after we're told about how the Messiah, Jesus, he removes our sin, the very next image we get is one which I find completely compelling. It's one that actually, you know, as I'm reading it, it gets me uh, excited, it stirs my heart. And it's the image of a barren woman singing and shouting for joy. Now you have to understand a little bit of the context that this was written in in order to understand the weight of what's being said here because this would have been a very powerful image for people in that day and here's why because a barren woman was seen as the person with the worst possible fate in that culture in that society right to be a barren woman I mean you're just cursed essentially you, you are considered really just man that's just as bad as it can possibly be because in that day in those cultures in these uh you know ancient cultures even in eastern cultures today the number of children that you had completely determined your fate in life right it determined your future completely for example the more children you had economically you would be more prosperous right because you would have more people to work your land that's obvious but think about this too the, the more children you had the more secure you would be because if you didn't have adult children to take care of you when you reached old age you could likely starve to death with no one to take care of you right no social security nothing like that to to, to have a background in right so the more children you had, the more secure you would be, especially in old age. And if you wanted to have two or three kids who would actually make it until you were elderly, well, then you might need to have six or eight kids or even ten because uh, most children did not survive until maturity. 
And you had to have as many kids as you could possibly have, right? Because if, if you lived in a tribe, right, then you need to make your tribe big and strong because if the tribe who lives down the street from you ha gets bigger than yours, well then guess what? They're going to come and conquer you and take you over, right? So in ancient times, if you can imagine this, if there's like a group of ladies, they're hanging around the, the water cooler or the well or whatever they call it in those days, right? The group of ladies, they're standing around the well and they're talking to each other and the one says, you know, I think I only want to have two kids. You know, maybe like a boy and a girl and I think I'll stop there. Everybody would be like, what? Are you, do you have a death wish or something? Do you hate yourself? And don't forget, this isn't just about you. This is about us. We need those kids. We need you to have as many kids as you possibly can because that affects us economically, militarily, politically. You need to have as many kids as you can possibly have, right? And that's why in those cultures, a woman who gave birth to children was considered a national hero, right? But here's the thing, and this is, this is really key to the gospel, and this is what it is. The natural tendency of the human heart is to take good things and turn them into ultimate things. You know that? That's the tendency of my heart. It's the tendency of your heart. That we take good things, right, and we turn them into ultimate things. In ancient cultures, like I said, in many eastern cultures even to this day, family is the ultimate thing. It is the only thing that matters. It matters more than anything else. It is the sole measure of your value and your worth and the value of your life, right? So a woman who could not have children for whatever reason, she felt worthless. And not only did she feel worthless, but she was treated. She was regarded as worthless in that society. And that's why when we see women throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament, right, who were unable to have children, it was just the most crushing, devastating thing imaginable. Do you remember Rachel, right? The wife of Jacob in Genesis. She struggled with barrenness. And at one point she cries out to her husband and says, Give me children or I die. That pretty much sums it up. You remember Hannah, right? Who ended up becoming the mother of Samuel. It says that she was standing in front of the temple weeping so much that she, was, it, she seemed out of her mind. And, the, and the, the priest came, Eli, and he thought that she was drunk. I mean, we're talking great despair, devastation. Give me children or I die. That sums it up in those cultures. But here's the thing. In those cultures, family was the ultimate thing. And, and, and really, this is important, that whatever the ultimate thing is for you, the thing that matters more than anything to you, matters more than anything else, the thing which you pursue more than anything, the thing which you feel gives your life meaning and value, that's what you live for, that is the ultimate thing, that is the very definition of an idol, right? It's the very definition of an idol. And if you look at the idols that they worshipped in those cultures, a lot of these idols were based on, uh, you know, things like having children, right? They would worship these gods so that they would become fertile, so that their land would produce. You see what I'm saying? The ultimate things became idols. That's what an idol is. It's the thing that you live for. It's the thing that you believe gives your life purpose. It's the main thing, the ultimate thing in your life. Now in our culture, it's not the case, right? We don't base value on how many children somebody's able to produce, right? That doesn't really, uh, you know, that, that's not how we 
base someone's value. In fact, here in Boulder County, if you walk down the street and you've got more than two kids, then people generally assume that you must be running some kind of daycare program. And if they find out that those kids are yours, right, especially if you got like three or four, well, then they figure, oh no, you must be some terribly backwards, ignorant, uneducated person because you don't understand that pregnancy is a completely preventable condition, right? So back a month or two ago, I went with some guys and we, were, we climbed Mount of the Holy Cross, right down, in, uh, down by Vail. <coughs> and as we were on our way up the mountain, uh, we, we ended up running into this girl who had gotten separated from her group. They had all, I think they all went back, actually, and she wanted to continue up to the summit. So she ended up joining up with our group, uh, the four guys who were climbing uh, the peak there. So as we got to talking to this girl, you know, she lived in Denver, she was in her 20s, and, uh, and she found out that between the four of us guys, uh, there were 12 kids in our, that we had. We had 12 kids between four guys, and not only that, but there was one more on the way. And she just about freaked out, like she just could not wrap her mind around the fact that people would actually do that on purpose, right? Like, and I think she thought that she had just gotten dizzy from the altitude, and there's meeting us was like she had seen like a leprechaun riding on a riding on a unicorn or something right like going up to the candy castle or something like that you know what I mean she thought am I hallucinating what are who are these people you know so all that to say this our modern culture very different from that one in that day in which the idol was children and family and the goal was to have as many kids as you could because that was what your value was based in but every culture has idols. You know, our culture is no exception. Every culture sets out things that says, these are the ultimate things. And if you don't have these things, then you are worthless. Then your life has no meaning. Your life has no significance. Your existence is not justified. And I'm sure you all know what those are in our culture, right? They're individual assets, right? In their culture, it was collective. It was family, tribe. In ours, it's individual assets. Looks, career, money, individual assets. And if you don't have those things, then you are considered worthless, right? But look at what the gospel does. When you understand the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross, it causes the barren woman to sing even though she has no children, right? It causes the barren woman to shout for joy. Chapter 54 verse 1, sing and shout for joy, you barren woman. Break forth in joyful shouting. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. Your shame will be taken away. Do you get how radical that is? And do you understand that that is said following the announcement that the Messiah has borne your sins to set you free, that you will be healed? Do you understand how radical that is? That the idea that a barren woman could sing and shout for joy even though she had no children. That a barren woman could be set free from fear and from shame because of the gospel. You know why? Because the Messiah... The Christ has borne your sins. He has been pierced for your transgressions to rescue you, to set you free, to heal you. And if you have that, then you have more than the woman who has many children. Do you get that part? It said that in, in verse 1. You who have not labored with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman. 
See, children represent value. They represent worth. They represent security and safety. And he's saying this. You, in the gospel, in the Messiah who has been pierced for you, who has healed you, you have more value. You have more worth. You have more security. You have more freedom than this world could ever offer you in anything that it possibly offers. And here's what he says in verse 5 of chapter 54. He says, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And here's why. Marriage is the perfect metaphor for the gospel. And here's why. It's, it's a perfect metaphor of what God has done for you in Christ. Because marriage is not only an intense, intimate relationship, but marriage is also a legal status. You know that? And that's, that's what we have in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. That in Christ, God has not only brought you in to a relationship with him, but he has given you a new legal standing. Right? Marriage is the kind of thing where the moment before you do it, you have none of it. Right? You have nothing. But the moment you take that vow, in the very instant that you do it, immediately you have everything that comes along with it. Right? You have a new name, you have an inheritance, you have a new status. And that's what we have in Christ. That is what the gospel does. So here's what the gospel does. It restructures your heart. It gives you a new legal standing that you are in Christ, that you've been rescued by the Messiah who hung on the cross for you in your place, bearing your sin to heal you and bring you peace. You go from this status of cursed and condemned to the status of saved and redeemed. And when you realize that, like the barren woman, you're able to sing and shout for joy no matter what your earthly circumstances are. Because you've been given something more valuable than anything that can be found or attained here on earth. Not only does the gospel remove your sin and restructure your heart, but the gospel also reverses your values. The gospel reverses your values. Now let's look at this city that Isaiah describes. You remember I skipped ahead there in chapter 54 and I read verses 11 through 14. He describes this city, right? It's a city that has foundations made of sapphires and battlements of rubies, its gates of crystal, its precious or its walls made of precious stones. It's a place, it tells us there, where people know the Lord, where there's well-being of all people who dwell there. It's a place that is established in righteousness. It's a city of great beauty and great wealth, where there is no sin and no fear of oppression. Right? It's free of oppression. It's free of terror. It's established in righteousness. Now what city is this? It's a city of peace, right? But, but this is no city that's ever existed here on earth, right? Jerusalem was rebuilt after this, but it certainly wasn't rebuilt like this. And it certainly wasn't a place that was free of oppression. Now this is a city that's actually referred to numerous times throughout the Bible. We read in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham, he lived as a nomad all of his days. Not just because he had to, he chose to. He lived as a nomad and it says why he was searching for a city. Who had, a city which had foundations. Whose maker and builder was God. He was looking for a city that can't be found here on earth. 
And in Revelation, at the conclusion of this grand story of the gospel and of God's salvation, we read about this city, right? That the earth will be destroyed and there will be a new heavens and a new earth and there will be a new city, the new Jerusalem. And in that city, it says that the streets are paved with gold. And the foundation of that city is made with what? With precious stones, right? And in that city, what happens? Man dwells with God. It says the dwelling place of man is with God. And God wipes every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be death, nor mourning, crying, nor pain. Because all of these things have passed away. So that city that Isaiah describes there in chapter 54. The city that Abraham sought after. That is the same city that we see in Revelation. It's heaven. And that's why the announcement of the city comes after the announcement that the Messiah has been pierced for your transgressions, that you might be healed, that you might be reconciled to God. But here's the thing I want to point out about this city. Why make roads out of gold, right? I mean, you could make them out of something else. and You could save the gold, do something else with it, right? Why make a foundation out of precious stones? You don't see a foundation. Why would you make that out of something beautiful, precious stones? Why would you build walls out of gems? Here's why. Because in God's kingdom, the things which the world attributes so much value to, the things that in this world people fight over and go to war because of, right? In God's kingdom, those things are just building materials, right? No one's fighting over them. In fact, no one is even thinking about them. Why? Because there's something of much greater worth in that city that people are enraptured with and concerned with. What matters in God's kingdom are the things which are eternal. Souls, people, God matters. But gold and precious stones? No, that's just building material. That's the stuff that we walk on, the stuff that we sit on. You know, in the world that we live in, think about it this way. Think about values. People tend to love money, and as a result, they use people, and they'll even try to use God. But in God's kingdom, those values are reversed. The values are you love God, and you love people, and you know what you do with money and wealth? You use it, right? It's just a tool. That's all it is. You see, it's a reversal of values. That's what we see there in the kingdom of God. And that's what happens when you come to know the God. Uh, excuse me, when you come to know the gospel, when, when you see that what God has done for you in Christ, it changes your values. It changes the things that really matter to you. And it causes you to think differently about money and people. It causes you to live differently. And all of your goals, your aspirations, they begin to change. It changes all your values across the board. When you come to know the good news of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, then your heart is changed because you know that your status has changed. And you come to understand what is being prepared for you in heaven. And it changes your values. It changes the things that you seek after. So that brings us to our final question. What do we do with the gospel? What should we do with the gospel? You know, this passage from Isaiah chapter 53, it appears again in, in several places throughout the Bible, but uh, one place in particular I want to talk about. It appears again in the book of Acts. We read there in the book of Acts that there was a man from Ethiopia who made a pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, apparently seeking for truth, apparently trying to find God. And this man was a eunuch, and that meant that he couldn't have any children. It also meant that he was probably a high-ranking government official because in those days, that was the price that you paid to be a government official, was you became a eunuch because then you were not a threat 
to the power of the king by having children, right? Because children meant power. So this man was rich, he was powerful, yet he was empty. He's still searching for something. He's still going to Jerusalem to find that thing that he's looking for. And it seems that he comes back from Jerusalem. He's on his way home and he appears to be unfulfilled. He appears to still be searching for that thing that he had gone to Jerusalem to find through that spiritual experience, right? It seems that it hadn't worked out for him because as he's on his way home from Jerusalem, he's reading the scriptures, right? But he does not understand them. And he seems frustrated and unfulfilled. And along the way, he meets up with Philip, who's a, who's a Christian. And Philip climbs up in his chariot with him and says, what are you reading, man? Let me help you understand it. And he says, well, what does this mean? He was pierced for our transgressions. And it says there in Acts chapter 8, verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus Christ. That Ethiopian man, he put his faith in the gospel that day and he was baptized that same day and he went home a happy man and a changed man. So here's the point. What is the gospel? If the gospel is news of a rescue, then guess what? It needs to be proclaimed. It needs to be announced. It needs to be shared. And it needs to be spread. And also, if the gospel transforms our hearts and changes our minds and changes our lives, then the gospel is something that we need to meditate on, to study, to constantly be letting come into our hearts and sink down deep in our hearts to change us. And we need to apply it. So here at Whitefields, one of the things that we like to say about who we are, one of the taglines that we like to give ourselves as a church is that we like to use the term gospel-centered. Because we want the gospel to be at the center of everything we do, everything we teach, every endeavor that we go on. Just as the whole Bible centers around this story and message of Jesus Christ, we want everything we do to center around the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's why here at Whitefields we, we strive that our message would not be just tips and strategies for do-it-yourself self-improvement, right? No, our message is Jesus Christ and Him crucified and all that that means for you because that message will and does impact and change your life. And recently I've been, been reading the news and probably some of you have heard this. It's been all over the news lately. There's a group in England called the Sunday Assembly. Anybody heard of the Sunday Assembly? So what the Sunday Assembly is, they started the first one in London. And their goal is to be the first atheist and agnostic megachurch, right? They want to do everything that church does just without God. And they apparently think that that's not actually that difficult. And I watched, they have some YouTube videos, some news reports from England about this. Right now, they're trying to export it, right? They're trying to go to 40 cities and start Sunday assemblies, meaning atheist agnostic church services, in 40 of the biggest cities in the world. Uh, right, and actually, today, they are in New York City. So uh, what they do, they sing songs, they drink tea out in the lobby, they go out and do good deeds together, they raise money for good causes. They take offerings, of course, and they, they use them to do good things. And they have a sermon each week even. Did you know that? And the founder, right, he, uh, he's kind of a well-known guy in England, and he was talking about these sermons. And, and the obvious question is, what do you preach on if you don't have the Bible and you don't believe in God? And he said, well, you know, that's not hard at all. 
He says most preaching in churches these days is tips and strategies for how to be a better, kinder, more well-rounded person. We embrace that wholeheartedly. And that's what our sermons are about too. And we believe we don't need God in order to do that. And you know what? He's absolutely right. If that's all that you're doing in your sermon is teaching you some tips and strategies for self-improvement, then you don't need God to do that. But as Christians, there's one thing that we've been entrusted with, one thing that we have been given and called to be faithful with and called to do the best that we can with and just focus on it, right? Dial it in. And it's not practical advice on self-improvement. You know what it is? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's what this message is that we need to proclaim. Paul the Apostle, said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. But here's another thing about the gospel that many Christians fail to understand. Many Christians think that the gospel is kind of like the ABCs of Christianity. It's kind of like the beginner stuff, right? The, uh, the first steps, the basics that you have to believe in order to get in the door, right? In order to be a Christian. But what I want you to see and what I've been trying to show you today is that the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ is not the ABCs of Christianity. It is the A to Z of Christianity. It's the whole thing. The whole Bible revolves around telling this story of Jesus Christ, this story of our rescue, this grand message. And I have to tell you this, you never outgrow the gospel. You could be a Christian for however long you will never outgrow the gospel you'll never move on to deeper stuff the next step this is the step right we just keep coming back to this and you see that in the new testament epistles when you see paul the apostle peter john when they write and when they give practical advice it's not just practical advice it's not saying now you have believed the gospel now let me give you some advice no you know what it is he says Come back to the gospel and consider how the gospel has implications for every part of your life. Consider how the gospel has implications for your marriage, for your parenting, for your work ethic, for your relationship with your boss, for the way that you handle money and the way that you talk to people, even the way that you plan for your future. Everything, it always points back to the gospel. It always circles around to the gospel and comes back out. You never outgrow the gospel. The gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. So, very briefly, what does this mean for us practically as a church? Number one, it means that we want to be a people who are committed to preaching the gospel both in the walls of this church and outside the walls of this church. Next week, I'm going to be talking about mission, and I will be focusing on that aspect, preaching the gospel outside of the walls of the church. But let me just focus in right now on our commitment to preaching the gospel in this church and everything that we teach being about Jesus Christ. What are our goals? We want to see believers in our fellowship mature in their faith. We want to see people equipped to tra and trained to serve the Lord and serve other people in the ways that God's gifted them. We want to see people come to understand the gospel and have it be so intrinsic, so built into them that they are so familiar with it that they're able to apply it, they're able to counsel other people with the gospel and share it with them. We want to be a people who respond to the gospel in worship, in prayer. We want to be a people who respond in faith and in acts of love and generosity and compassion. We want to be not only hearers of the word, but doers of it. And we want to see healthy, strong marriages, strong families, relationships healed, those kind of things. 
And, and so here's some of the, what that looks for us practically. Here's some practical steps we're making, and I'll finish with this. In addition to what we do here on Sundays, we want to encourage people to be plugged in to community groups and be studying the word and getting to know the gospel together in small groups. We've got a number of groups going right now. We'd love to see more and we'd love to see everybody plugged into one. Another thing is that we want to focus on marriages. We want to build up marriages and families. You know, we've been wanting to do a marriage ministry for a long time, but the, the thing that we didn't want to do is just add more stuff to already busy schedules. We don't want to just fill up the calendar with stuff. So we thought, how can we do this in a way that would just be a blessing to people, that would be something that they look forward to? Even the, you know, the moms look forward to it. The Nobody has to volunteer. We're going to feed you dinner. We're going to watch your kids. We just want to bless you, and we're going to give you something substantial that builds up your marriage. And so that's what our whole idea is behind this date night concept. And we hope that you'll join us for that. It's something that we're really excited about. But again, we want to build up marriages. We want to do, we want to spend resources on that and focus on it, make it a focus of our church. Another vision we have, and I'll end with this, this is really in God's hands. It's kind of, it could be short-term, it could be long-term, I don't know, but a vision that we have is to start a school of ministry and discipleship. We already have a name for it, we just don't have uh, it's set up yet. The name is going to be Equip School of Discipleship and Ministry. And the idea behind this is that it would be a place, it would be kind of like a Bible school for people who can't go to Bible school, right? Because you work and you have kids and we would have classes and we would be able to have classes on stuff like books of the Bible and have classes on stuff like ministry and, and, uh, and you know, stuff like church history that can really enrich our understanding of the gospel and how it works out in life these days. You know, so we would have classes. To make that happen, we would need a space. And this comes to another point that eventually as a church, that's one of our goals, that we want to have our own space. It's not our primary goal, but it is a, it's a long-term goal that we would love to see God give us our own space where we'd have the flexibility to uh, do all of the wonderful things that God has placed on our hearts. So please join us in praying for that. Please join us in praying for all these things. We don't ever want to get ahead of God, but we just want to keep right in step with Him and what He's doing and what He's calling us to do. So please be praying for these things. And over the next couple of weeks, I'll be sharing more about the DNA, the core values, and the vision for our church. But for this week, here's our first core value, and it's key. It's the gospel, right? The good news that God has rescued us in Jesus Christ and that gospel that when you embrace it, rescues you from sin. It, it restructures your heart. It reverses your values. And for this reason, that gospel that we have, it's ours to proclaim and preach and study and apply with all diligence because it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for this great gospel and we thank you for who you've called us to be as a people and as a church. And Lord, may we be faithful with that that you've entrusted us with, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we always come back to it. May we proclaim it. May we apply it. May we study it. And Lord, would you make it come alive, that message of our rescue. Lord, make it come alive and true in our hearts this morning. We thank you for who you are. And now as we sing this song, Lord, we want to sing it in response to who you are and what you've done for us. We ask that as we go this week, you would go with us and Lord, keep the gospel alive in our hearts and fresh on our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.